going to pass the offering plate twice as we do. It is our desire this morning that the veil to heaven would be thin for the North Shore Community Church today. Because if you have your Bibles, take them and turn to John chapter 17, and we are landing in verse 24 as we come toward the close of the great high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ, which we have studied much of the summer together. And in this 24th verse, Jesus earnestly implores God his Father, and he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So far, the reading of God's Word. How do you describe a sunset to someone born blind? They've never seen a campfire. They've never seen a flashlight. They've never learned to distinguish between orange and pink and yellow and purple. How do you describe one of those magnificent sunsets over the Long Island Sound to someone born blind? Today we're going to think about heaven and the glory of Jesus Christ that he prays you and I will enter. And after reading books and articles about it this week, I do feel as one writer said, like I'm trying to describe a sunset to my own blind eyes and to yours. I feel so inadequate. And yet I tell you, if we catch a glimpse here and there of what the Scripture teaches us, I felt this morning like I was going to explode. I did. This song that Mike sang for us of Isaac Watts, it's a special song. Because Isaac Watts understood that if he could, by analogy, like Moses, who was forbidden to enter the land flowing with milk and honey, he had to wait. But he was permitted by God to rise up and see the land and to see that his tired, frustrated people will cross death's dark stream. They will cross the River Jordan. They will enter the promised land. And he saw it. And Watts said, if we could see it, We would be men and women of strength and of hope and of courage even at our last breath. Oh, my friends, our sense of ownership of our own heavenly destination is very important in the Christian life. I know, I know, we've heard the conventional wisdom spoken of some people, maybe even some of you, and it's been said, well, he's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. And I suppose there is a generalization that can can be made about some people that they're so, so into the things of God that they've never really developed life skills. I suppose that might be true. 
But I propose to you that just the opposite is true. That the people who are the most earthly good are the people who are the most heavenly aware, the most heavenly minded. They are the people who touch this world and who change this world. And so we come to our text. And what do we find as Jesus prays in verse 24? We find, first of all, something amazing, that Jesus wants you to be with him in glory. And then he's going to give you two things in glory, his presence and that very glory itself. This first point is very interesting because here Jesus says, I want. Now, some translations say Jesus prayed, I desire. But Leon Morris in his commentary says, you must not underplay this word. For this is a word not of, I wish, I desire, if it's possible. But Leon Morris points out that in the Greek language, this is a word of willful action. Now, let me ask you parents. Do any of you parents have any willful children? Any of you parents have a child who knows what they want and they want it? Now, I want it, 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 I want it. Anybody have a child like that? We all do at some point. And I don't want to be irreverent here, but this is God the Son saying to God the Father, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. I want them to be with me where I am. So you are peeking into the heart of Jesus. Who does he want? Who will he take to be with him? You know the passage in John 14, verse 3, where Jesus is talking about heaven. And he says, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Who are these people that he's going to take to heaven with him? In the prayer, he tells us to the Father, those you have given me. And so one more time, perhaps you're weary of hearing it, so one more time we have an example of the particular love of God the Father. He does not just have general love out there for somebody somewhere, but God our Father has His electing love, His particular love that He places upon His people. And so He chose Israel, but not Egypt. So He chose Israel, but not Canaan. And so, how does the, the hymn writer says? Uh, that Jesus Christ has his elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth. Who will come to heaven? Jesus knows. Those you have given me, particular, by name. The Father knows them by name. Are you one of them? Are you one of those that the Father knows by name? Are you a worshiper and a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you been made alive? Do you have the Son? Because he who has the Son has life. 1 John 5, 11 and 12. But he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. But if you have the Son of God, you have life. And this is extraordinary, at least to John Yenchko. Because when I look at myself, I say, 
Does that include me? Me? Why would he set his love on me? Doesn't he know the dark places of my heart? Doesn't he know the failings of my life? Doesn't he know the poverty of my own faith and spirit and love? Me? Why would he want me to be with him? In his great book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes about this very conundrum, this very question that all of us would have. Why would God set his love on me? And here's what Lewis writes. He says, to be pleasing to God. Listen to this phrase. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. That's a, a human being that actually makes God happy. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist, delights in his work, or a father in a son, it seems impossible. It seems, Lewis says, like a weight of glory that we can hardly sustain. And then in his inimicable style, Lewis writes of the church, but so it is. You, in Christ, are a delight, a part of, an ingredient of God's happiness, His good pleasure. He delights in you. And, and frankly, given how unlovely we can be, this is amazing. I mean, there are probably some people in this room with a with the classic superiority complex, who view themselves as, you know, I'm God's gift to women. I'm God's gift to men. And I have a deep awareness of my own personal greatness. But most of us are not like that. Most of us are aware of our flaws, our sins, are failing, and we do feel awkward and unlovable, and we think of other people and even of God. If you really knew me, you would reject me. Have you ever had that thought? If you really knew me, you would reject me. But Jesus is so different from that impulse inside of us. We actually have impulses inside of us to reject and condemn and look down and push away other people. You know what I'm talking about. But Jesus, for his people, he is not like that. And he says, I want you to be with me where I am. And after he says that he wants us to see his glory, again, it's not the, the, the grounding of this. Look at the verse. The grounding of this is not because they are so special, but what does he say? Because of the love you have for me. And this is very humbling. So he's not saying, I want that John Yenshko with me because he's so fascinating and interesting. He says, I want John Yenshko with me because of the love you have for me. This is deep stuff. We're going to study it even more next Sunday because I want to get on to the, the promises that we have. But friends, 
The ground of our salvation, once again, is not our performance. The ground of our salvation is His work, and we look to Christ alone for salvation. The love that the Father has for the Son is what saves us, and we ride in on His coattails. We ride in receiving the love that the Father has for the Son. And so, like I've said several times, I might doubt for a moment that God loves me, but I can never doubt. Can you ever doubt for a moment that God the Father loves His Son, in whom He is well pleased? You've got to get this in your life, because if you do, you get set free from needing to save yourself by religion. You see, the big problem with man-made religion is what? It's this deluded idea that if I go through enough ritual, if I perform well enough, I will save myself. And you can't, you can't, you can't. It is the love that the Father has for the Son that is the ground of our salvation here. It is the work of Jesus Christ. We spoke of His active obedience. Remember that? His active obedience, that He completely fulfilled the law where Adam failed and where Israel failed and where I failed and you failed. He completely kept the law. That's His active obedience, perfect and righteous. And His passive obedience. Have you learned that term? That is the obedience of Christ unto death where He surrendered Himself to the cross to receive the punishment that I deserve as our substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous, my substitute. And the Father is pleased with him, an acceptable sacrifice. And the Father raised him from the dead and took him into glory. And now he says he wants to take his people into glory. Is this your confidence today? I hope that it is. North Shore Community Church, he wants you. Dare to believe this. You are an ingredient in the happiness of God because of Jesus. Now, the second point of my sermon is this. Jesus is going to give you the most amazing experience in heaven. What is that? His presence and His glory. His presence and His glory. Where does the Bible describe for us in detail what heaven will be like? Well, that's a trick question. Because... In a very real sense, nowhere. The Bible does not tell us a lot about heaven. Oh, oh, sure, but Pastor John, you must not have read your Bible. There's, there's quite a list of, of allusions to heaven. Why didn't you read about the streets of gold? Haven't you heard about the marriage banquet? Didn't you know there's a throne surrounded by a rainbow with a sea of glass, clear as crystal? Didn't you know that there's an absence of all death and weeping and tears and sorrow and regrets? Why, those things are gone. Pastor John, didn't you know about that? Well, okay, thank you very much. Yes. But those are just hints. One more time from earlier in our service, if you came in late... There was someone who went to heaven, the Apostle Paul, right? And he wrote about it in Scripture. 
And I read this week an article by a man named Stanley Baldwin, beautiful article that brought new perspective to my own thinking about heaven. And in particular, Baldwin comments on the Apostle Paul's visit to heaven. And he, he, in a scholarly case, he makes the case that this probably happened in the book of Acts, recorded in Acts, when Paul was stoned in Lystra in A.D. 46, and the book of 2 Corinthians was written 14 years later. So that's why he says 14 years before. And um, he wrote this letter to the Corinthians, and he was raised up into the third heaven. Now, what in the world is that? The third heaven. And I think what, what you have is the first heaven is the atmosphere, you know, where the birds fly and the airplanes fly, and uh, that's the first heaven. Then the second heaven are, are the stars and the galaxies that fill the universe. But the third heaven is the paradise of God outside our universe, but real, the abode of God, the place where He dwells. And Paul was caught up there into the third heaven. And I'll read it again, 2 Corinthians 12. It's on the back of your sermon outline. We heard it earlier. Paul is almost confused as he writes. Repetition is good. I'll read it again. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Paradise must be the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was a, the Apostle Paul's buddy, if I had been Luke or Barnabas, I would have always had my elbow. Come on, Paul. You can tell me. What was it like? Come on. You don't need to tell me. What was it like? What did you see? What did you hear? Come on. And you know what he would have said to me? He would have said, I can't. And I won't. And he would have said, I can't for two reasons. First of all, he would just say, it's against God's law. It's against the law. It's unlawful. A man may not utter the things that I've seen and heard. And it's the language of prohibition. Why? Because God knew for some reason it would not be beneficial to his people yet to behold it with unveiled eyes. But secondly, just according to verse 4, it cannot be told. Why? Because as Stanley Baldwin said, it's like trying to describe a, a sunset to a blind person. I can't do it. 
And then he said, I won't do it. Because I would become conceited. Because what I have would make you think more of me than you should. I won't. Okay, I just want to make all that clear because now we come back to our text in John 17, 24 and this prayer of Jesus. And even though what we know about heaven is limited, still Jesus does give us these beautiful peaks into our future experience in heaven. And what does he say? He says two things. I will give you my presence and I will give you my glory. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And so I want to ask you today, what do you think is the best thing about heaven? All the gold? I like money. The feast? Oh, you know I like food. The absence of regrets, the total dissolving of my sins, won't that be wonderful? Which is the best of those? None of them. The best thing about heaven will be Jesus. The presence of Jesus. I am taking them where I am. His embrace, His welcome, His delight, your fellowship, sweet fellowship with Him and the Father, with the, with the atmosphere of heaven, which is the Shekinah glory, the Holy Spirit Himself, the very atmosphere you breathe that keeps you alive forever. But the best thing will be Jesus face to face. How can you describe this? A hint would be me to ask you, who is your best friend in the world? Who do you love hanging out with more than anybody else? Where you feel safe and happy and at peace and loved, loved. Now you take it and you exponentially multiply it by a gazillion. That is what you will feel and experience in the presence of Jesus. Oh, how we long for that. Because in this world, we're all alone, ultimately. There is Franz Kafka. He says this existential isolation of every human being. The Bible teaches in the book of Proverbs, everyone only knows their own sorrow. There is a sense in which we are all alone. But in heaven you will not be. And the intimacy with God the Father will be so beautiful, wonderful. And He will be loving on you. I, I'm not going to take time on this, but on, in Luke 12, 37, Jesus told this parable about the master who has a banquet, and after they finally get to the banquet, you know what it says of the master? It says the master will dress himself and make his guests recline at table, and the master will go and serve them. <laughs> Wait a minute, you say. I thought we served God in heaven. And we do. But Jesus, to our amazement, also tells us that while we serve Him out of love in heaven, He will be serving us. I don't get this. But He will be loving on you, caring for you, 
The best thing about heaven will be the presence of Jesus with you. And the next thing that Jesus makes explicit in this prayer is that you will see his glory. Do you remember at the beginning of our study, we camped out on how Jesus Christ was so committed to the glory of God the Father? Remember that? He lived for his Father's glory. And he lived for his own glory. That is, that he knew he would re-enter heaven and be glorified. The beginning of the prayer, right? Father, the hour has come. Now glorify your Son with the glory I had with you before the world began. Right? That's the beginning of the prayer. And now we come full circle, and he is going to enter again into his glory. But now at this time, he says, I'm not coming alone. Who is it? It's riding on the coattails of Jesus. You and I are going to behold His glory. And now the New Testament tells us time and again the beauty of this and the effect of this. Listen to 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. What's He talking about? He's talking about the transforming effect of seeing Jesus Christ in His glory face to face and what it will have on you. I miss Mike Devine. You know Mike has moved to Chicago. Whenever I had a question about science, I would call Mike. I should have called him. What is that process when you put the magnet, the magnetized plate in the the tub of of acid and then you turn on the electricity and it just pulls all the impurities out of it? What is that process, some of you scientists? Is that annealing or something like that? I don't know what it's called, but they flick the switch and all the impurities are drawn out by some magnetic force transforming effect. That's what happens when you see Jesus. All your sin, the dross, you see, the dross departs. And you are glorified. Glorification, we call it. Deliverance from the very presence of sin in your life. C.S. Lewis says, that you will be transformed into an everlasting splendor. And some of you know that passage. He says that if that person sitting right next to you, they're pretty good-looking. You're a good-looking group. But Lewis says that on that day, when they are transformed into glory, the person sitting next to you will be so splendid that you will be tempted to worship them. That's what Lewis says. And, of course, you should not do that. Who should you worship? God alone. But Lewis says, if you could but see that person sitting next to you in glory, you would be tempted to fall before them, and they would be saying, no, no, stop, don't. God alone. Now, I have to tell you, this is why hell is so terrible. 
Hell is so terrible for those who are cast into the outer darkness because they now know they are evicted from the presence of Jesus. And that outer darkness has no glory at all. Oh, my friends, this is why we are afraid of hell. This is why we do not want to go to hell. This is why we want to be in the presence of Christ. We want to know Him as our Savior. This is why the cross is so precious to us. And suddenly, we understand the dreaded cost of the cross for us. Suddenly we understand that when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is because we are told he was cut off. Cut off from what? Cut off from the presence of the Father. Cut off from the glory of the Father. And the ignominy of sin fell upon him. My sin, your sin fell upon him. And he suffered that outer darkness. He suffered unto death, the death, the terrible death that comes from the wages of sin. Oh, friends, this is why our hearts overflow with gratitude to Jesus. He took my darkness, my disqualifying shame on the cross. And now he welcomes us and says, I want them to see my glory because he knows it will transform us. Glory, glory, glory. Listen, friends, you don't just invite Jesus into your heart. You invite Jesus to glorify you, to change your life. That's why John says everyone who has his hope in these things uh, purifies himself. We begin that process even now. Lord Jesus, teach me to hate my sin. Get me ready for heaven. Let's get rid of this dross as much as we can now in this life. Okay? We want to be ready as a church family for heaven. Oh, yes, Paul, Apostle Paul, we do know know a few things about heaven. We only see through a glass darkly, right? 1 Corinthians 13, we only see through a glass darkly. But we will see him face to face, and what we know makes us eager. Are you eager for heaven? I hope it makes you eager. Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. If you get a hold of this, the presence of Christ, the glory of Christ will be mine. Then when you suffer in this life, and you will suffer, and I know your stories, many of you are suffering now. Many of you are suffering, I know it. Sorrows in your life are deep sorrows. but they are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in you, in Christ Jesus. So that is your hope, and that is your strength, and that is your witness. And you have friends who are atheists, 
And you have acquaintances who think when you're dead, you're dead. But not you. Don't be ashamed. Don't be timid. But be sure to say, not me. (laughs) When I'm dead, I'm with Jesus in heaven. And I believe that. Do you believe that? And I'm going to experience His unveiled presence. That is His gift to you. I will close with a short reading from the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia. Parents, have you read the Chronicles of Narnia with your children? The final book is called what? The Last Battle. And in the last chapter of the last battle, the children on a train suddenly hit a bump and they hear a trumpet blast and they are brought to the edge of heaven. And Lucy, Lucy, the star of the book and of the series, she says, listen, we must all go up. And they found themselves all walking together and the great bright procession it was up toward mountains higher than you could see in this world. And there were forests and green slopes and waterfalls and orchards, one above the other going up forever. And the light in front of them was growing stronger. And then she forgot everything else. Because Aslan, who is Aslan? Jesus Christ, the Christ figure. Because Aslan himself was coming, leaping down from cliff to cliff like a leaping cataract of power and beauty. Eventually, Aslan turns to them and says, You do not look as happy as I mean for you to be. Lucy said, We are so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, now dead. The school term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And this, Lewis says, is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. Come to Jesus now. Come to Him. In heaven, there is the unveiled presence of Jesus. In the Lord's Supper, Supper, we experience now the real spiritual presence of Jesus. Not a physical presence. The Bible teaches us that when his people come by faith, there is the real spiritual presence of Christ with his people. Let him minister to you at the place of your sorrow and persuade you, persuade you again 
that the sufferings of this present life are nothing compared to the glories that await us in heaven. Shall we pray? I invite the elders to come forward. Our Father, we do invite you to place in us hunger, spiritual hunger for you. And our Father, we invite you to place in us thirst, spiritual thirst that you will slake and that we, will, that we are standing right now where Moses stood, as it were, overlooking the promised land of heaven. For those who need hope in their life, Lord, give them hope. For those who need forgiveness, hear their confession and assure them afresh of forgiveness and the sufficiency of the cross. For those who need healing, physical healing, heal them. For those who need emotional and spiritual healing, heal them. For those who are afraid, minister to them your peace. Even now, right now, in Jesus' name, amen. If you are a baptized member of the Church of Jesus Christ, it doesn't have to be our church, but if you belong to a church that preaches what we preach here, we welcome you to come to the Lord's table. If you're not, it's a, we're still glad you're our guest. There are prayers you can pray. They're printed in the bulletin that you can pray and just pass it by. We want you to feed. We want you to come and feed church on Christ. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, as I, ministering in his name, give it to you. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we pass this out, let's have silence, silent prayer, and you meet with the Lord.
take the bread and in the act of feeding, feed on Christ in your hearts by faith. We thank you, our Father, that you're ministering to us right now. We pray not only would you minister to us, but would you lift up our eyes to heaven to see you and to worship you in truth and in spirit. Amen. In the same way, after supper, our Savior took the cup when he had given thanks, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many. Do this in remembrance of me. You are my 
This blood, this is the blood of the new covenant. This blood is the guarantee of your salvation, you who belong to Jesus Christ. This is the surety, assurance shed for you. Drink and be thankful. And now, and now we are going to sing our final song. From Paul's own writing, no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has ever conceived the glorious things that he has prepared for everyone who has believed. Let's stand and sing together. 